You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster Talk is supported by listeners like you. Find out how you can contribute via Patreon or with reviews at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Your contributions, large or small, make a huge difference. Thanks. Welcome to Jurassic Snark. quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Dog. 25 years ago, a movie about dinosaurs set a new standard for digital visual effects and introduced many people to revolutionary changes in our understanding of dinosaurs that had been transforming the way they were visualized. That movie was Jurassic Park, and it spawned sequels that are still making money in thrilling audiences today. But the movies have not continued to incorporate the latest science and we're not here to indict them for that. Movies like these are made to generate revenue, not to educate. But to celebrate this 25th anniversary, friend of the show, Dr. Darren Nash of the Tetzu podcast and tetzu.com blog, posted a lengthy stream of Twitter trivia about the movie with the hashtag Jurassic Park Trivia. I'll put a link to some of that stuff in the show notes. They're a treat. Also, this very weekend, if you happen to be in London, you could attend the 5th Annual Tetsu Con, a convention about tetrapod zoology and the culture around Darren's popular blog and podcast. I'm sad that I can't go myself, but I wanted to give a hand to Darren in promoting it as well as I could, and also to get a chance to nerd out with him about dinosaurs and movies. So I hope you enjoy the talk we're about to have. An extended cut of this interview with a rather curious tangent is available for Patreon supporters at any level at patreon.com forward slash monster talk. Monster talk. Hello. Ahoy, ahoy. Yeah. Oh, oh, we're doing video. Okay, hold oh, on a second. I don't have to if you don't want to. Well, I won't record the video. Uh, I found it. I found it useful to get visual signals from people when they speak. Is that right? Well, sometimes uh, you know you can because there's, you're going to get a giant mic for visual from me. Let's see. <laughs> there's frequently there's frequently a delay, which means you. You know, if you can see the other person moving, or if there's an emergency and they do some kind of like weird hand gesture or whatever. For the listeners at home, he's doing a weird hand gesture. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of thing. This is a. Isn't it nice to have this giant obscuring mic? Although, you know, to be let's be fair, we're we're both old enough that the idea of having video conference calls was the future, and now, like every device, I have a piece of tape over the camera. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise, yeah. I thought the future I'd be, you know, sexier. I don't know what happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a good look. <laughs> yeah, all right, thank you. Yeah, yeah. 
redneck in his basement in his <laughs> natural habitat. I'm like, yeah, just like, what would David Attenborough say if he could see me now? Well, you got a lot of books, so you, you get it. A- I do. I do. I do. Not as many. I've seen how you've uh, been developing your library. Uh, it, it, by the way, this is uh, this is great content we're putting together here. I like this. So this is good. Okay. That's <laughs> <laughs> what the listeners want. You know it. <laughs> All right, so thank you for coming back to Monster Talk. Thank you for it's having me. It's been a while. Yes, well, yeah, yeah I've, I've always enjoyed previous appearances on the show, so yeah, thanks for having me. And th- this is technically the first time we've actually appeared to each other, I think, on the show, so yeah, that's kind of weird. Uh, so let's get started on the questions, if that's all right. Uh, first of all, let me say, welcome back to Darren Nash. It's been more than a year since you've been on the show, and uh, in that time, you've had some changes in what you do, but basically... Uh, I would identify you as a paleontologist and a science writer. Can you tell people about your science writing and the change in venue and what's going on? Um, well, I'm best known, I guess, for Tetrawad Zoology, the uh, blog I host, which is which uh, I was based at Scientific American, which was, you know, good, good company to be associated with, but really wanted to become independent for various reasons, some of which I've, I've kind of written about a little bit, and uh, I've actually done that, I've gone independent. And Tetrawad Zoology... Who cares if you write a blog? You know, who cares? <laughs> who, who reads blogs these days? But it's part of this. It's kind of the the core of an entire kind of media empire <laughs> franchise that IN colleagues have built, which involves obviously the Tetrapodology podcast, various books that come off the back of it, Tetrapodology books, and books about various other things I'm interested in, including cryptozoology, including dinosaurs, and so on. And of course, the convention TetsuCon, which at the time of writing uh talk speaking even <laughs> is imminent yes it's in a few days uh, is it, it's this weekend right yeah that's right yeah sixth and seventh of all right this- so i will i will see to it that this episode gets out this week in advance of that yeah so where where is TetsuCon? because i know a lot of uh, american listeners will be discouraged by the drive yeah sorry americans yeah. <laughs> it's, it's in london in london england <laughs> And it's always so far. It's always been in London. This is the first one that's two days, so it's unusual. It's a two-day event, and um, yeah, we're in central London, and uh, we just just because that's where most of the people are. You know, <laughs> uh, you've, you're being based in London. You've automatically got you know a, a, an audience on your on your doorstep of uh, of millions millions of people. So. Um, uh, yeah, and uh, but we've got a gathering of people from you know all across the. The Tetsuniverse, as we like to say, you know, people research on uh, uh, animals living and dead. And uh, uh, I, I would like absolutely anything that's related in some way to the world of zoology, but specifically zoology of tetrapods, tetrapods, amphibians, reptiles, birds and mammals, as you know. That does include uh, anything kind of sort of in the world of the media like for example this this year we've got someone giving a talk about the making of music for nature documentaries which is really interesting Uh, anyone involved anything like that anything to do with art that's related to natural history and zoology anything to do with folklore uh cryptozoology big fan of cryptozoology as you know so any of those things would would be would be at home and uh, yeah with two with two days worth of talks workshops events panels it's difficult for me to remember everything that uh, is sure. happening but yeah uh, it's it's and vendors yes oh that's right yeah thanks yeah yeah lots of uh, people selling several book signings various vendors selling merchandise of various kinds like you know artwork also stuff like you know t-shirts and mugs and that what i really would like is toys i'm a big fan of animal toys and would really want uh, you know to have like a, a vendor bring in loads of toys but it's just really hard to get people to move stock around because it's just not worth it for the amount of money they make at that conventions well, you're promoting science and people will want to get t-shirts and books so, so I, i'm excited for you i wish i could go um it looks like a lot of fun and educational yeah so, yeah i mean but not so educational that it's not fun <laughs> right? well, well it's that it's that middle ground it's it's uh, that's yeah, right, it's fun, right it's fun and you're learning whether you like it or not or whether you realize it or not and uh yeah i think i think it totally works yeah outstanding well that's cool there's, how many years have you been doing it this is there's several is this your 
fourth? Ah, yeah, no, this is the fifth. Which I, fifth? Yeah, wow. It, yeah, I only realized that like three days ago. So I'm like, that's yeah. that's that's not as it's not as big a deal as having your twentieth or your tenth, but it's still a, a big deal. Wow, we've been going for five years, a hemi decade. So I mean, um you should be, you know, potty trained by now at least, right? <laughs> as, as <far> as... <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, yeah. So we're we're celebrating it in some way. I've run it together with uh, paleo artist John Conway. Conway's a bit of a slacker; doesn't really pull his weight, doesn't really do much. But uh, he is doing something in the way. I don't know. I don't know what he's doing. I think he's making a banner or he's stapling some pictures together or something to say, "Wow, five years!" So uh, yeah, yeah. That's they're... very cool. Congratulations on that. <laughs> so. It, around the time that you decided to change your uh, home base for your blog, I saw that it, it sort of coincided with you writing about Jurassic Park and the 25th anniversary. Mm. So so I'm bringing you back mm. uh, for what I, I'm calling a special episode, uh, Jurassic Snark. Mm. So, <laughs> and, and, and of course, you know, uh, I think we both love the movie, but it's got its issues. So, But before we get into all that, let's talk about when did you first see it? Um on opening night when it came out in uh july i think i think it was about july 12th 1993 i think uh we uh the premiere here in england or in the uk the whole of the uk was about two or three weeks after uh so certainly the us so and i guess the whole of north america got it so yeah we we had a slight lag um so there was a lot of stuff in the press talking about it and talking about the premiere and everything in 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 the states but um yeah so yeah J- july 1993 so i saw it the day it came out where, where were you uh, in your education at that point so i was i'm not going to do the maths but i reckon i was late teenage years so i was at i was at college i was studying what we call a levels which are like you know uh, sort of um beyond oh my god it's like before university kind of like college basically yeah yeah, as a college, and uh, um, yes, got to see all of the merch. Uh, like, due to my, I had I had a job at the same time as 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 being in education, and uh, uh, was involved in the um, the news agents industry. So dealing with magazines and newspapers all the time, and just it was just constant, constant, constant Jurassic Park merchandise and promotion. So you're getting to see and hear all these snippets of the story long before anything has actually come out. So I already felt that, you know, I knew what a lot of things were going to look like. Obviously, I already knew Michael Crichton's book very well. Um, what, you know, wondering what of the book is going to make it into the, into the film. Um, and, uh, yeah, so going into the cinema for the first time, it's like, yeah, I kind of feel like I know some of it, but there's huge sway. So this general storyline, you don't know exactly what they're going to do in the storyline. Um, but I feel it worked out. <laughs> no, I, I think they did okay. They did okay with it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Financially, at least. But I guess what I, that tells me is probably as you went through your educational process, you became more and more educated about what was wrong with the film. <laughs> Ooh, how do I answer that? I don't know, because I would say that, so my concern before, even before seeing the film, this might sound odd, but I was concerned that many of the strange things in the book were going to make it into the film. So Michael Crichton, um, I don't know. It's one of those weird things where, I would say that he's good at coming up with stuff. If you think of, you know, the the, the projects he, he's famous for, Westworld, Andromeda Strain, uh, Jurassic Park and others. Um, you know, he's good at coming up with these ideas, but the execution maybe isn't, you know, the best. And some of, some of the things he puts in are really strange. There's also this weird kind of, you know, slight anti-science rhetoric that's in some of his writing, which is quite possibly linked to uh, his views, which you know, became well known under President Bush Jr., uh, his his views on uh, anthropogenic global warming. He seemed to be su- somewhat anti-science in some regard. And, and there's quite a bit of that in Jurassic Park. It's like science science is not for the good of us. We're not doing this to improve ourselves. We're doing it because of egos and, and people like making a mess of things, is specifically said in Jurassic Park. So that was always weird and that bothered me. And then the portrayal of some of the dinosaurs, just his ideas. Okay, we all get, I think... You don't have to be an expert on prehistoric animals to know that there's got, if if we did bring any fossil animal back to life, there's going to be some aspects of its biology, appearance, behavior that, you know, we wouldn't have guessed that it did that or looked like that. But some of the things that he 
it just has are just like no that's just silly that's just wrong i mean the, there's a long list of examples in the book jurassic park and the classic one is tyrannosaurus has got a giant floppy slobbery tongue that it uses to like envelop people's heads and it's uh, wh- why why would you why would you do that is is that because the animal's meant to be some genetic chimera well no i think he thought that let's just have that as a weird thing so so stuff like that that had me concerned about like maybe the film is going to be super weird it's going to have some uh, some stuff in it that i really wish it didn't it's i think it's quite obvious that if you if you drill down into some of the minutiae of specific things he says you know where did he get this from he gets virtually everything he says um from um publications like new scientist which is which is fine and there's no shame in that but it's he's often just reading the the superficial first take on something and not go into the technical papers he's not really you know getting into these things in depth and i remember i remember the the um the uh, sex switching west african hyproliad frogs as a as a brief news who, who doesn't <laughs> exactly exactly it's a, we, we drink it in with our mother's milk as they say later our fathers yeah what <laughs> Uh, yeah um but yeah no so uh to go back to your your original point yeah it was it was uh, do we need to be concerned about the way dinosaurs are being portrayed in the film and when you see them finally in the film see them for the first time you know like a lot of people of my age and people that like the film people that like dinosaurs i saw the film many times when it first came out seen it many times since and it's like, no, this is pretty good. They've done pretty good in terms of their portrayal of the dinosaurs. They haven't done everything exactly as I would have liked, but they have done pretty well. So, yeah, fears are laid somewhat. Well, did you um, – I know recently you did a, a lot of tweets around the this this topic uh, with trivia and stuff. Have you storified those into a single uh, sort of – one place I can send listeners to check that out. No, I don't think I've done anything useful like that. No, but uh, oh, yeah. that'd be really cool. <laughs> Let me write that down because that'd be that'd be a good uh, a good thing to do. I'll, I'll check that out. Yeah, yeah. Okay. In the meantime, though, they could just go back. I think you gave it a hashtag, if I remember correctly, though. I think hashtag Jurassic Park trivia. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll we'll uh, we'll be able to find it that way. That'll work. Um. So what did they get right? What what what's good about the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park? Yeah, so you've got to remember the film's made 1992, 93. Um, to the majority of its audience, it's the first outing for the um, agile, active, you know, air quotes, warm-blooded. Um, um, and I don't have a problem with dinosaurs being warm-blooded. I just mean I don't like the term because it implies you're either warm-blooded or you're cold-blooded, and it's more complex, more complex than that. But it's the first outing for this like new look. Um, horizontal bodies tail off the ground active running dinosaurs that are moderately intelligent um okay the dinosaurs in jurassic park in, you know, definitely in cases you know way more intelligent than they probably were in life but whatever um yeah it's the dinosaurs of the dinosaur renaissance or renaissance um which are you know they've been around for to scientists the people who know dinosaurs they've been around since the late 60s but there is still this dominant trope that dinosaurs are you know the dinosaurs of Fantasia, the giant, fat, tail-dragging, you know, cold-blooded, dim-witted reptile, and Jurassic Park is is bringing to its audience the dinosaurs of the of the Renaissance, but it's a, a couple of decades late, but nevertheless, that's what it's doing. So that's and that's a big deal, and it's doing it pretty well. You know, the Tyrannosaurus looks pretty good, the the sauropods, the Brachiosaurs, they're 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 pretty, you know, accurately portrayed, and uh, limbs are a bit too chunky, but you know, they 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 look good, and and most people. You know, again, talking about the average person, not people who are not dinosaur fans, they haven't heard of Velociraptor. But okay, there's 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 the you know there's there's the disclaimer that the dinosaur in Jurassic Park is not Velociraptor, but they haven't heard of that kind of dinosaur before. That's a totally new animal to them, and that those kinds of animals, those uh, you know, bird-like, um, agile, active, you know, vicious, uh, sharp-clawed. Uh, predators uh, were were a big deal that helped overturn people's understanding of what dinosaurs were like in the 60s and 70s as far as warm-blooded cold-blooded so you're saying they're um, they're not uh, they don't identify as thermally binary <laughs> <laughs> well, well 
<laughs> well, the th- the thing is that, uh, like, yeah, it's not it's not a uh, a black black or white distinction. It's a it's yeah. A, it, I've I've read a little bit about that because I, I guess some are thought to have been like uh, apatosaurs. Uh, they would have been like the their sheer body mass would have made them thermally warm warm blooded ish. Well, I, well, I mean, I mean across animals in general. I mean, animals in general, it's kind of bad to use this idea that you're either warm blooded or you're cold blooded. It's just not that simple. So there's, you know, there's mammals that have got, you know, a fairly uh, active metabolism. They're generating heat internally, but they're still dependent on external heat. And there's oh, oh, my <clears throat> wife. What? <laughs> She needs a blanket and a heater all the time. That's is that what you're talking about? <laughs> I specifically had her in mind. Um, yeah, okay. yeah, that 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 kind of thing. And and you know, there's there's conventionally cold-blooded animals that are meant to be dependent on external sources of heat. There's there's various you know fishes and uh, lizards that generate heat internally, and it's just it's just like a bad way to think about animals. They're either warm-blooded or cold-blooded. I think gotcha. that most of the evidence we have for non-bird dinosaurs extinct dinosaurs i think most of the evidence indicates they probably were air quotes warm-blooded um but i just it's just dangerous to ah, dangerous it's not dangerous it's just like it's misleading to think that you're either it's, warm-blooded or cold-blooded. I, I think the phrase i've been going with is it's more complicated than that you know yeah and it, it's always more complicated than that <laughs> because anything you think you understand chances are it's more complicated than that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. He's like, there you go. And it's complicated enough that you don't want, you know, just, just avoid it. It's like, yeah. Probably an, <laughs> an entire episode by itself, right? So, exactly. I mean, we're not even talking about Bigfoot here yet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, what did they get wrong? I mean, I, this may take longer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the the key thing, of course, the, I suppose the thing that, you know, I've, get it out get it out there up front not surprised these days is is feathers they opted not to feather their velociraptor type dinosaurs so the dinosaur in jurassic park they call it velociraptor it's not actually velociraptor it's another animal called deinonychus which was you know discovered in montana but they um they called it Velociraptor because Crichton followed one particular author who said that Velociraptor and Dononychus are the same animal. And so they included the older name, right? They gave, gave it the older name. That turns out to be wrong. So it's not Velociraptor, whatever. Those Velociraptor-type dinosaurs, they decided to keep them scaly skinned because the consensus in the paleontological community at the time was that was more likely to be correct. That was kind of, you know, more sensible, more conservative. Um, and that has had knock-on effects, you know, all the way up to the the current films, the Jurassic World films, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, obviously the newest one. Um, now, as I've said a few times, I say this in my Tetrapod Zoology articles about Jurassic Park. Um, there were people in the early 1990s and beforehand, you know, going, going back to the 60s, there were people who said that these Velociraptor type dinosaurs probably should be given feathers because their anatomy is so similar to that of their close relatives, early birds. Uh, the most famous example, of course, being Archaeopteryx, which has been known since the uh, late 1850s. So they should really have feathered them, but general consensus among paleontologists was don't. And of course, well, look where we are now. Now we know for sure these animals had feathers because we've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of fossils of them preserved that way. So that's the that's the biggest, you know, thing. They should have put feathers on them, and they didn't. And then. I think I always found it like early on interesting uh, before even the feather thing came to my attention was the DNA breaks down. So the whole idea of uh, getting the DNA from uh, mosquitoes, which I thought was super clever when I saw it. But later on, when I was reading about it, it's like, oh, DNA doesn't last that long. I mean, it lasts a lot longer than I thought it would based on recent things people being able to extract. But uh, yeah, apparently it's... Uh, no good. And also, that, that they never explain in the movies how they get things like a mosasaur. That seemed uh, what mosquito was biting that. I don't I'm not. I'm not. Well, I'm not worried about that because mosquitoes bite uh, crocodiles and whales all the time. So you could get no. There's no reason why you couldn't get the uh, DNA from marine marine animals. You know, there are mosquitoes on beaches and stuff. But yeah, the if there's anything in there that requires the to use that infamous phrase suspension of disbelief is is that it's just the idea that they just managed to uh you know 
of of the the length of the DNA strand, you yeah, as, as you've mentioned, you know, it it doesn't last more than a you know at best a few tens of thousands of years, and yet they're talking about retrieving complete you know near complete DNA strands. Uh, that are millions and millions of years old, at minimum 66 million years old, or technically 65.5 million years old, and they're just repairing the gaps somehow. Quite how they know what where the gaps are, and have the, I don't know. It's, yeah, no, yeah. But so that's the bit that just requires you to just wave your arms. And, yeah, yeah. They, they just that's just how it works. And also, why would you get dinosaurs that you know? It's like of the of the list of animals that they reconstituted from these you know recovered bits of uh, uh, genomes how come they've ended up with all the famous species how come they haven't got <laughs> when they've got a load of things that we've never heard of that are totally new i think that's that's been mentioned a few times that would be more it like, seems like they, based on the fossil record they'd be disproportionately high in hadrosaurs right i mean <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> everything's yeah. a hadrosaur yeah that's uh. that's right yeah what else have you got? No, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> no predators? No. <laughs> only, only 10 samples. Oh, great. Yeah. So, <laughs> what, um, you you uh, have been working with a project in, in uh, England uh, that's trying to get some of this stuff more accurately. Uh, what, can you tell about, talk about that a bit? Yeah. So this is uh, Dinosaurs in the Wild, which is kind of like the modern version of Jurassic Park, although... Sorry, a bit of a spoiler here. It's not actually real. It's uh, it's what? <laughs> yeah, sorry. It's uh, it it's sort of not you know it's not connected in any way to the Jurassic Park Jurassic World franchise, of course. But it's sort of the the logical descendant of it in that you uh, as a vis should say from the start that it's now closed. It closed on second of September this year. Sorry, so, listeners. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the idea was that you would step in a time machine. That there's a company called Chronotex which has invented time travel and is using it to explore the past. And uh, they've set up researches ba- research bases at various points in history. You go to Time Base sixty seven. And you explore a research, a research base where there's people doing experiments and dissections and studying animals in laboratories and all that kind of stuff for all kinds of different purposes, you know. And um, you do get to see uh, th- through a, a lookout, you know, through big windows, which aren't really windows, they're actually screens, again, spoiler. Um, you get to see uh, CG dinosaurs. And uh, I was the technical consultant on this. And... Um, uh, yeah, pretty. They're pretty much the, uh, the the among the best CG dinosaurs yet created, and certainly by far the best for something of this kind of thing. You know, for a visitor attraction um, in in London. It only ran for thirteen months in three different locations in Birmingham, Manchester, and London. It was only visited. Uh, I'm, these figures are you know not bad it was visited by uh, over a quarter of a million and people and scored really highly in terms of visitor feedback and you know the sorts of feedback you expect from um you know when the way it scores as goes how how like attractions are scored and um yeah really really happy with what people said about it and so it was late cretaceous um, Western North America. It's meant to be set in Montana because it's based around you seeing animals like Tyrannosaurus and Triceratops. We kind of figured you had to have those like superstar animals to draw people in. But um, yeah, we did the sort of things that something like Jurassic Park and Jurassic World maybe should have done, but but didn't. So you know, we got good-looking, accurate, colourful often feathery dinosaurs our tyrannosaurs are, are fuzzy they do have like filaments uh, on parts of their bodies our dakota raptor which is a large relative of velociraptor fully feathered very bird-like our giant sauropods and our triceratops are very extravagant weird looking brightly colored animals and we include some non-dinosaurs like the giant pterosaur quetzalcoatlus which myself nice. and my, yeah myself and colleagues have argued that that was a you know, quite different from the conventional portrayal. It wasn't some super light air being that that relied on grabbing things while in flight. It actually was a quite a robust, muscular kind of animal that walked around on the ground and grabbed things, um, you know, things up to the side. You know, like human-sized animals. So, um, yeah, an exciting new human size, but not humans because they didn't coexist. Just <laughs> thanks for clearing that one up <laughs> I, that was not for you darren that was for listeners <laughs> what are you saying about your listeners blake uh i love them is what i'm saying so <laughs> yeah 
Oh, so that sounds awesome. So was it a, a commercial project, an educational project? How was that created? It was a commercial project. So it's uh, run by a, you know, a consortium uh, led by, well, not led by, that's not fair, but I, I always, it's led, it's led by a whole bunch of people. It's difficult for me to kind of cook pin it down to like you know one one company because we called it the company was called dinosaurs in the wild but uh i first got involved in it because of tim haynes and tim haynes is the guy behind uh, walking with dinosaurs and similar projects so it kind of evolved out of that of course tim's not the only person involved loads of people uh, helped to bring this to life um but um has he thought about like a chinese food show walking with dinosaurs <laughs> <laughs> I have to be so careful in listening to what you say because I sometimes you know, I miss I miss these gentle gentle. <laughs> if Jack Corner has his way, the chicken will soon become part of that project. So. Oh dear, yeah. How do you feel about that project? Uh, uh, turning a dinosaur, I mean, turning a chicken into a more uh, a primitive version by unlocking chunks of DNA that nature thought were, were not needed anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> uh. No, I, we talked to a guy uh, who teaches at a university near me and, and part of his project was, you know, turning on the gene for chicken teeth, you know? Mm. And I was like, and then what happens? Well, we kill them while they're embryos and then look at the, you know, look at, look at it under a microscope. I'm like, you don't grow chicken teeth. Why would you not do that? I, you know, he's like, mm. well, ethics prevents it. And I'm like, well, I feel like my tax dollars are wasted. <laughs> is what I feel like. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, as, as a fan of chickens, I've got mixed feelings about it. I, I kind of can't help feeling that it's, I don't know. I don't, chickens are quite magnificent animals and you're not, you're not going to produce some magnificent, beautiful thing. It's going to be some fairly ugly kind of cobbled together Franken. Well, you heard it here, folks. Paleontologist cries foul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've already done a few terrible cartoons of what I think uh, Jack Horner's chicken Soros will look like online. Uh, I don't know. I, my, my grandfather uh, once found a roaming emu. Uh, or emu, I'm not sure. I, I always say emu, but uh, fine. The, the uh, it, 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 I don't know why, but it was on his property, and he has like 300, more than 300 acres. He calls a neighbor up, and the two of them wrestle this emu, and they put it into a pen, and he keeps it for 10 years. Hmm. So I, I, I've had about 10 years of experience with an emu, and uh, honestly, the idea of a chicken uh, <laughs> 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 rolled back <laughs> to its most predatory. Uh, primitive state, you know, seems a little scary. Uh, I mean, obviously chickens, I don't know what it would take within their DNA to find size, uh, uh, you know, but turning on the scales, turning on the teeth, this, this kind of stuff, they already have pretty scaly feet. Uh, their feet, you know, look, I mean, well, to be fair, the emu look more like a dinosaur, you know, than anything. And I guess technically they are dinosaurs. That's right. All birds so. are dinosaurs. Yeah. Right. And uh, they're not talking about, I mean, remember the kind of dinosaur, the kind of non-bird dinosaur that they're thinking about making their chicken resemble already kind of looks like a chicken anyway. All these, you know, Velociraptor-type dinosaurs—they're called—they're called, they're called uh, Manoraptorans. Manoraptorans, the big group that includes the Velociraptor-type things, the Oviraptors, the Triodontids, and the birds. Uh, the, the fossils show us they all basically look like kind of big chickeny type animals. So if you do actually, even if you reconstruct, even if you trigger those genes that cause the, it to grow teeth and cause it to grow, you know, large clawed fingers you're not going to see a lot of that stuff anyway because uh, you know the the teeth are inside the mouth the the f birds already have fingers but they're concealed by the feathering i i'm just kind of confused as to what they think they're going to show it's going to be a fully feathery animal they're not going to you know turn it scaly because those yeah. the dinosaurs weren't like that those dinosaurs weren't like that so and, and it, I was going to say, it, one of the interesting things about it though is how much of the information is still captured in the dna but it's not written out to express itself in whatever necessary moments of its you know development happen and and i find that interesting because uh as a i come from an it background so some of the complaints i have about jurassic park fall into nedry's realm uh <laughs> and the it department but but the idea of uh of finding out or having a better understanding of how to unlock segments of of the of the genome that have been disabled for whatever reason because of uh, 
evolution. I find that very interesting. You know, those genes that may still express themselves in other species, but have been turned off in our species or other species that we're looking at, you know, and, and looking at the sort of molecular differences between uh, close relatives over time. I think that all is probably going to be necessary. And as, as a species who's looking into understanding this, we just recently found out DNA exists and then recently found out that every living thing we've run into has it. And then recently found out that genes have more than one way of expressing themselves. And there's this whole thing um, about uh, information outside of the genes and epigenetics. And so we're like in baby land. And so I guess the, the hubris of thinking they can take any animal and roll it back is a little bit ridiculous but but if you don't think big maybe you don't discover stuff so i don't know what will come of it i'm 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 not against it uh but i don't think we're gonna see anything particularly as you say photogenic hello i'm paul giamatti and i'm steven asma each week on chinwag we dig into the weird topics you wonder about that you care about the stuff none of us are totally sure of like the bermuda triangle mothman consciousness philosophy UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, as off the back of this project, they have already discovered some really interesting things about Evo Devo, about how the genetics is linked to the development of certain bits of anatomy. They've published some stuff on uh, the uh, the different parts of the snout, the different the way they're formed in birds, and how that's different from how it was in other kinds of dinosaurs. How the fused tail in birds forms, as opposed to the longer, you know, more segmented tail of, of other kinds of dinosaurs. But um, so those are interesting things that are worth knowing about, knowing which genes code for the development of which structures. But yeah, that does not make a big difference to the actual the overall look of the animal, which is the thing that people are most interested in. We're, we're, we're kind of shallow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, but, that's, but like I say, that's the thing. Even if you did have a, uh, a live velociraptor, you know, velociraptor is not particularly big. It's like the size of a turkey. Um, you wouldn't, you know, people, people want it to be some snarling kind of dragon monster. And it's not. These things would have looked like hawks or pheasants. They wouldn't be that spectacular. Uh, yeah. hawk, hawks and pheasants are spectacular. I like them a lot, but I'm just saying, you know, it's, it's not the vision of dinosaurs that people kind of think they will get. Yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, let's let's change topics a little bit because I want to catch something that was in the news recently. Uh, but uh, a few years back, uh, one of Jack Corner's colleagues, Mary Schweitzer, mm. allegedly found soft tissue in a T-Rex skeleton. And it was a really big controversy at the time. And I had looked around before we talked and saw some suggestions that this was legitimate. But I thought I would check with you because I know science sometimes pushes back and forth on these kind of questions. Uh, so do you, have you kept up with that and what's going on with that soft tissue research? Well, it's, it's beyond my 
area of expertise and it's also to be frank it's beyond my direct area of interest i don't particularly find it that interesting paleo paleo proteomics as it's known but um and as a non-specialist it's quite difficult to um know you know which way it's going because it's one of those things where if you read the uh papers published on both sides of the fence they both sound equally uh, defensible and you know valid so Schweitzer and colleagues they say they've identified these specific proteins these specific chemicals that are very similar to those of birds uh, but are in these you know it's, it's Cretaceous ancient fossils not, and they're not they're saying they're not remarkable fossils they're just ordinary dry chunks of bone they also say not only do they have these chemical you know traces but they have actual you know blood vessels and <clears throat> blood cells and so on a few other teams have reported similar results saying they found blood vessels and, and blood cells. Uh, and it's like if they've they seem to have ruled out Schweitzer and, and colleagues and the other people who've published this kind of research, they seem to have ruled out in their research that it's not it's not fungi, it's not bacterial biofilms, you know, it's it's none of those things. And you're like, well, okay, maybe, you know, maybe they're right. Maybe there's something that we're not quite understanding. These fossils are not just bones that have been mineralized and have lost any organic content. The organic content is still in there. There's, there's some part of the process that we still don't quite get. So, so I'm, and I'm prepared to buy that. You know, have, I've, I've met Mary Schweitzer on a couple of occasions. I've been to talks. I've read these papers. You know, I'm like, okay, uh, you know. Okay, that sounds pretty compelling to me. But then on the other hand, you've got people that say that no, they've made some fundamental mistake. They have mistaken, you know, the they've misunderstood the chemistry. No one else can replicate their results. No one else is finding the same stuff as they are. And and those people also seem to know what they're talking about. You know, they've these are people who who, who publish, you know, on the on the same stuff, the biochemistry of, of fossils and microscopic, you know, biofilms and bacteria preserved in fossils and everything. And uh, and again, you know, I listen to their stuff and it's like, yeah, this is a this is an appropriate level of skepticism for such a remarkable series of claims. Um, so I'm totally on the fence on this one. Uh, my, my feelings won't be hurt either way, um, you know, whichever, whichever way it goes. And I'm inclined to think that it is valid because having seen schweitzer et al's uh you know results and and heard how they've interpreted them interpreted them and what they think they've they've seen what they seem to have seen it's like yeah that, that i i find it I, I find it compelling but i also see it as it is weird and uh, surely there's got to be another explanation is kind of what my gut tells me so um and so far as I know, that is kind of where everyone is in the community right now. You know, every couple of years at the conferences, the paleontology conferences, there's, there's one of these talks. You get someone says that, oh, yeah, we've shown that these blood vessels and blood cells, that they're, they're, you know, fungal spores or you know, bacteria or something. And then you get someone else saying, well, we tested them. And no, they have the specific chemistry that demonstrates they're from, um, yeah, they're from bird-like animals. And uh, they are do not match fungi. They do not match bacteria. Um, so yeah. <laughs> so it, I don't want to oversimplify it or dumb it down or be wrong, terribly wrong, because I'm often all those things. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, they found something in in a cavity in the bone, right? And then they it was somewhat spongy, and they demineralized it, and we're left with something kind of like collagen. Is that the idea? That's that is the gist of one of these studies but there's yeah. a whole bunch of them so there's like about schweitzer and colleagues have published i don't i, I don't know i had a guess you know i had a guess like five to fifteen papers where they've reported results just like what you've described but others as well so yeah yeah that's there there's no. you're referring to the one where they 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 dissolved the bone and they were left with some organic residue behind right, and that right, that right. couldn't be explained unless it was um yeah uh, actual blood vessels. I mean, it's not wacky because, I mean, in theory, the, a live animal dies and then starts to slowly demineralize. So the idea that there would be some organic material left behind throughout that process until it was complete yeah. makes sense. What I found more shocking was this recent uh, Precambrian Dickinsonia or Dickinsonia? Dickinsonia, yeah. Dickinsonia fossils. And that's like 
500 million years old, not 65. Yeah. And they're claiming that they found cholesterol molecules in those, which would, if true and not a contamination, mm. would, would, would imply these were particularly animals and not fungi or some other animal life or some other life form. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's pretty amazing to me that cholesterol is, is uh, still a problem uh, with fossils. And is there like a statin drug or something that we can <laughs> give these fossils to help them? <laughs> well, they're, they're very flat fossils. So uh, they are, they, they are, they didn't, they didn't bother them that much, but where, yeah, in that case, I mean, where you're talking about, I mean, remember that, uh, these these kinds of cases, you're not talking about like a complex, you know, long chain fatty molecule thing. You're talking about like you know microscopic chemical traces that a total non-expert on any of this and haven't even read that new paper. But uh, it's like, yeah, okay, if you find you know specific chemical traces that are linked to that particular, you know, chemical or whatever, then uh, yeah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's uh fossilization is probably not it's certainly not the things are turned to stone that's the end of it that's not the process it's not things are turned to stone it's, it's proven to be way more complex and we've we'll, we've always like you know taught and been taught that it requires the most exceptional circumstances for organic traces to be preserved it's looking really much the case that that is that is not so that it's not that exceptional for you know it's it seems at the moment from from everything we've just been talking about it seems that um a great many fossils do incorporate some some organic content and remember that um, what you just said about fossils being slowly mineralized is like that's not definitely the case there's we know of uh, modern taphonomic experiments modern experiments done on living things where they're mineralized really quickly like, like in hours or days due to the uh, specific chemistry of the of the water they're in or the sediment that they're entombed in there's actually cases where um uh, my my former PhD supervisor Dave Martill did a load of things with certain shrimps in particular environments where they they like mineralized that death just because the you know the particular uh, conditions of the solution they were in meant that that was that was a thing that was a thing that happened so if that can happen the whole idea that fossilization is meant to occur over a long period of time uh, is absolutely not true and the whole idea that uh, the or, you know organic aspects of an organism will be destroyed uh, before the uh, the organism is entombed into the rock record is you know there's no reason to assume that it's like things can happen much quickly well i would have to say that if we could figure out how to make that happen easily we could completely transform the funeral industry because can you imagine you could just be your own statue <laughs> well well are you, are you, do you know about this is a quite a macabre subject. I don't know if we should talk about it, but you know there are cases of, uh, yeah. The, do you know what lithopedian is? Um, it's uh, it's a, a rock that walks. <laughs> I don't know. No, what is it? <laughs> um, that's a lithopedestrian. Sorry. Lith what what is a lithopedian? <laughs> lithopedian is like a, a, a calcified um, fetus that's uh, sort of Im Im embedded in the. In the in the body of the mother, sometimes considerable. Oh, I've seen them in Weekly World News. Yeah, <laughs> Weekly World <Yeah>. News. <laughs> I mean, you know, I've seen them in 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 fringe tabloidy kind of things. Yes, yes, yeah, the sort of thing you would see at the uh, I think it's the Muter Museum. Yeah, where they they have like a various uh, abnormalities and various other things. But yeah, I had heard about sort of calcified fetuses. Yes. Yeah, I think I should stop there because I got off on a very peculiar tangent. But, well, it is a tangent, but it's also October, so this could be <laughs> Halloween content. Don't, don't, don't hold back on my account. Well, it's also, it's one of those blind alleys where I yeah I I, I know I know like the, <laughs> the fact that it exists, but I certainly don't know enough to talk about it on a podcast because you know you know you, you shouldn't make you make a fool out of yourself on a. On, no, 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 on a no I agree. I think what 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 are the things that sort of elevates. <laughs> monster talk in from from some podcasts not yours but some podcasts <laughs> is i do do i do do i do do a modicum of research before i talk to people so uh and and i mean deeper than wikipedia <laughs> right i don't doubt it i don't doubt it. so yeah but but that's that's all right i i uh 
Uh, nature is strange. And I know you've tried to limit yourself to tetrapods. Mm. You're really excluding a lot. Like I looked at some Cambrian fossils, you know, the Cambrian explosion. And, uh, you know, you think about, you know, we, we see what tetrapods and occasionally hexapods in the forms of insects. And then, there, you know, then there's creepy stuff like millipedes and centipedes. But man, there was a lot of other body types out there that didn't make it. <laughs> and yeah. maybe it's some that did, some that are under the ocean that are still out there that are just amazingly peculiar well yeah this is a really interesting subject it comes up it comes up a lot in discussions of the um well where do i start i mean it's the whole thesis behind stephen jay gould's book wonderful life uh the contingency of 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 life whether whether things are going to predetermined or destined whether certain body plans will inevitably arise once once you know multicellular organisms have evolved and and gould says using the burgess shale animals the Caribbean as an example he says that there's all these crazy body types that never went anywhere it wasn't inevitable that arthropods and uh, chordates which include vertebrates it wasn't inevitable they would arise and you know survive why wouldn't there be descendants of you know, he mentions some other animals as the representatives of very different body types. Why wouldn't there be uh, opabinia descendants, things with, you know, proboscis and multi- multiple segments and everything? And uh, that's kind of relevant to some of the speculative biology stuff. People saying, oh, you know, if there, if there were other timelines, parallel timelines, you know, you wouldn't have vertebrates. You would have, you know, whatever, some other lineage. The, the pushback to Gould's idea, which has been promoted most strongly by uh, Simon Conway Morris, whose research Gould was mostly writing about, Simon Conway Morris uh, said that, that that Gould was was flat wrong, and that these weird body types actually weren't that weird, and that they were all like uh, stem members, like early uh, members of the main lineages. So most of them are kind of like you know members of the arthropod lineage that were not that different from early arthropods that are better known from better better remains and uh, and and that and that's turned out to be most mostly true i don't i don't think that it in any way disrupts the gould's main theme about about complex life having not having an inevitability in terms of is it inevitable that you would end up with humanoids you have five fingers and flat faces and walk like us is is that inevitable um but simon conway morris you know I, i think went went too far as well in in his book because he seemed to have uh, his couple of books because i, I seem to always end, <laughs> always end up talking about this on podcasts i've done this a few times um he um he basically said that no no what what happened what was inevitable it was inevitable there that humanoids would end up with five fingers and all that kind of stuff and and that mm. yeah and the f- I, I i used to get tendori from a guy with six fingers so i'm gonna disagree but yeah <laughs> 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 the fact that one of Comey Morris's books is called Crucible of Creation and that it uh, does seem to lean uh, uh, somewhat heavily on uh, his uh, religious um, convictions is, uh, I don't know what the right term is, but <laughs> it bothers me just a little bit. It, it, it implies a potential bias. Yeah, very well said. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, but and I wish Gould was still around because he was a hell of a writer. And, uh, you know, I didn't agree with everything he wrote, but I I really enjoyed almost every article I read of his. Yeah. And and, and he was uh, a really good science communicator. And, uh, you know, there's an interesting Monster Talk tie in here. Uh, His widow uh, got very excited about Hogzilla. Huh. Do you remember Hogzilla, <laughs> uh, the giant very pig? Very well, yeah, yeah, I wrote about it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So she she wrote some of the best debunking of the Hogzilla photos I saw. Huh. Yeah, so it's, so it's really, I don't know why. that like <laughs> It didn't seem to tie in with any of her other stuff, but but she got all over Hogzilla and uh, wrote several articles about Hogzilla and some of sort of the, the subsequent giant hog stories. How bizarre. <laughs> I really ought to have an episode about Hogzilla because uh, pigs are weird. And delicious, but weird. Yeah, yeah. Are pigs that weird? What's weird about pigs? I'm not not saying you're wrong, but... Well, here in Georgia and around the southeastern United States, you get to see what happens to the domestic pig as a phenotype when it goes feral. Mm. Uh, So you take a normal-looking, regular farm pig, and you take it out and let it go into the wild. It'll survive just fine in in America. There's plenty of food for it. 
In fact, it'll really thrive. There's big herds of them in Texas, mm. Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, probably Florida too, but I know in those states. And uh, these wild hogs, they their hair becomes extra coarse and long. They get big tusks. They basically turn into wild boars, mm. only now they're 500-pound wild boars instead of 150-pound European boars. So uh, they're impressive mm. uh, how quickly they change and once they've changed you can't take them back into the pen and have them turn back into normal pigs again or like domestic looking pigs that that phenotypical change whatever triggers it is from a uh from a body type perspective it is a stunning change mm. so yeah i find that interesting i think i think that's interesting yeah that's it, it seems to be very quick as well after just a few generations and they revert to wild boar type uh, looking animals yeah. yeah we have the same thing here in europe because uh, the the wild boar was officially made extinct here in england in the i think as far back as the 1600s but there's just been constant you know uh releases uh, over the years a- accidental and deliberate of domestic pigs of various kinds and uh and uh, some releases of boars as well but uh, yeah you end you've ended up with this hybrid swarm of like bold suburban uh, boars that like you know dig up people's gardens and smash their cars and stuff so yeah there's this parts of parts of england southern england that have got you know they, they've just given up trying to control them we obviously do not have the the whole the whole, the whole um uh, hunting culture that you know you do you do have in parts of the states we just don't have that at all there's uh there's like one or two people that might go out and you know with a license cull a few deer every now and again but um yeah these these pigs boars are uh, out of out of hand in uh some places and of course we don't have any natural predators whatsoever we don't have any of the stuff that you have so um unless unless uh, we're going to go down the route of talking about the british british big cats but even even if we do I, I, <laughs> I do think we do at least at times we do have escapee pumas and, and leopards you know occasionally but even if we do you don't have a population that's going to be you know. Not sufficient to keep that popu- other population in control. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think pigs are like kind of like dogs. I think uh, if people left, pigs and dogs would be fine. So they, they'd probably have a very interesting relationship with one another. <laughs> they can be friends. <laughs> <laughs> they, yeah, they can eat each other too. Pigs are, pigs are brutal. So my grandfather raised hogs. And so I got to see how hogs behave amongst themselves. And um yeah pigs are not nice pigs are brutal pigs will eat anything including other pigs uh yeah well they're so, very much like people I, I, yeah no they are they are and i i don't think it's uh a coincidence i mean i mean people you know a lot of religions prohibit the consumption of pork and you know uh a lot of modern people have decided that's because of disease and uh potentially because they competed for the same food there's lots of reasons mm. uh, they are delicious um yeah i'm not arguing that and you know i'm not a religious person and i just can't imagine that if there was a god he'd want me not to eat barbecue um but that being said <laughs> they are like they can be very dangerous and uh they uh they do like you you see how they we use them in fiction like uh between uh, George Orwell and Pink Floyd, I think that we got it covered there. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I'm impressed uh, with how intelligent they are. I do, I do like the fact that this. So they're they're part of the even-toed hoof mammals, the artiodactyls, and uh, it, it it turns out that a group of animals that you know, due to our own our own history and their history, the fact that they've mostly been, you know, grazing and browsing animals of woodlands and plains, we've seen them as, you know, nothing more than animals we should just hunt and kill. But it's like once, now that we've got to know them through decades and decades and in cases, in cases centuries of domestication, they're all, like, pretty smart. Um, pigs, certainly, you know, a pig is almost definitely as clever as a, as clever as a dog, if not smarter. I know not all dogs are of equal intelligence, but you know what I mean. And, uh, this is probably true for most artiodactyls. They are they're actually pretty smart animals. This even goes for sheep and goats. So we've got this idea that, you know, sheep are really stupid, brainless, you know, herd animals. But, well, she, sheep and goats are really similar. And goats do really well on intelligence tests. You know, again, way beyond, way beyond dog level. There's a lot of recent experiments about um, goats response to human emotions and goats are like experts at reading human facial signals seriously check this out it's amazing they're like you know again they're on par with with other primates and with and with dogs and um 
And I'm saying it's it, because their Lord and Master is Satan. Have you looked at their eyes, Darren? Have you looked at their I've eyes? I've looked into their eyes. Yes, everyone says this, but if you all, but you know, no one says that about a horse. Have you looked into a horse's eyes? Because because all those you know plains dwelling hoofed mammals, they've all got eyes like that. So yeah. <laughs> I don't remember horses looking like that. I've looked at a horse's eyes, but I don't remember it. Do they have the, they have the vertical eye slits? Horizontal. Really? Horizontal. 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 Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, but they have a bar. It's it's shorter in horses than it is in goats. But that's mostly because okay. the eye is not as obvious. It doesn't, you know, it's not not giant bulging thing out of the head. So, we, we fell off dinosaurs somewhere. I'm not sure how that happened. I feel like alley-oop all of a sudden. Um <laughs> That that was a falling off dinosaurs joke. Thank you, people. But <laughs> I just about got it. I'm vaguely aware of who Ali Oop is. Yeah, yeah. It was an American comic strip when I was a kid. So it's it was old when I. It may have actually been paleo art. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I think we've covered most of the questions I had. Is there anything else you want to talk about Jurassic Park, Jurassic World? Did you like the new one? Uh, I haven't seen it because. I uh, just didn't like grab my interest and it was on at the same time as a bunch of other movies that I was more interested in seeing. Yeah. So yeah, no, I, I just, I just, well, it answered, I thought it answered that question that almost everybody who watched Jurassic Park had was like, okay, we brought dinosaurs back and we put them on an Island, but what would it be like? Hold on. What would it be like if we also had them in a big fancy house? Because I know <laughs> that's what I've been wondering about. Yeah, from... I mean, these are dinosaurs. Maybe nature's most magnificent creatures ever created. Let's put them in a house. Let's put them in know? a house. Yeah, I know this. I've seen the bit in the basement, and I've, uh, I, I did, I did see the giant Lego house, the Lego construction. So I know there's meant to be bits when the Indoraptor. Is yeah, indom- yeah. no Indominus is Indominus is meant to be climbing, yeah. see uh, climbing on the the roof and stuff. So, yeah, I think I know what I need to, but uh, I don't know. I may, maybe I'll see it when it goes to Netflix or something. But um, yeah, my kids loved it. I'll say that. Fair I, enough. I don't want to. I don't want to speak ill of it because they had a good time and someday they may listen to this show. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, it, maybe they stopped listening somewhere around the pig sex. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, Darren, I, I really wish I could be at Ted Zucon. I think this is going to be a ton of fun and really educational. Uh, is there anything else you want to talk about with Ted Zucon? Remind people. I know it's in London. I know it's this weekend. Um, well, not really. I mean, as it's the first two day one and just getting it to two days is the, the threshold to like building something bigger and better. So ultimately, we want it to be a multi-day event. And if we do ever end up with enough money in the kitty, we have a big international audience. We have a big American audience. So we'd certainly be interested in uh, going stateside and uh, yeah, doing a Tetsucon West. <laughs> so uh, maybe maybe one day uh, if, if yeah, you're interested yeah. in stuff that I write about and uh, uh, the, the, the broader workings of what's in the Tetsuniverse. Yeah, you know, keep your eyes, uh, keep your... Whatever, keep keep an eye on what's going on because uh, it should get it should get bigger and better over time. Well, I, that sounds awesome. I, I I keep an eye on this because someday I'd love to do a monster conference that's more skeptically oriented, mm. uh, and and so I'm always uh, interested in how people fare when they try to put together conferences like this. So I, I'm watching you closely. Well, thanks, thank you. We we wanted to do well. We've got an on stage debate this year. It's turned out not into not a debate at all. It's turned into just a friendly discussion. But I initially wanted it because I thought that could be a good chance to have, you know, argue, friendly arguments of the sort you might have with, uh, you know, about such such subjects as as bigfoot and lake monsters and so on and and i'm sure in time we will get to that we will have like you know a, a specialist sort of you know crypti cryptozoology or mystery animal uh, section we, we've had a few talks but we haven't had like a, a devoted session and that's definitely something we're going to have soon yeah okay but we'll put the the website will have all the details absolutely yeah thanks yeah and, and i'll have that in the monster talk notes at monstertalk.org as well okay so tetsu dot com dot com yep okay and then monstertalk.org there we go monster talk you've been listening to monster talk the science show about monsters i'm blake smith you've been listening to an interview with darren nash about jurassic park and the science behind that film darren's fifth annual tet con is october 6th and 7th 2018 in london at the venue on mallet street links to that will be at the show notes at monstertalk.org or at tetzu.com forward slash convention. 
Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine, and the views expressed here are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. Honestly, I don't know if they have any opinions about Jurassic Park. You'd have to check the magazine. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as the donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Save the date for a colossal PsyCon 2018. Bigger venue, bigger stars, bigger ideas, bigger fun. Las Vegas, October the 18th to the 21st, 2018. PsyCon is already one of the planet's premier skeptical conferences where hundreds of critical thinkers come to Las Vegas, the city of illusions, to hear from the leading lights of science and skepticism. For 2018, we want PsyCon to be bigger than ever. We've even booked a bigger hotel. Come to Las Vegas at the Westgate Resort and Casino to see the brilliant and hilarious Stephen Fry on stage with Richard Dawkins. An opening night talk by Stephen Pinker on the ideas behind his new book, Enlightenment Now. The triumphant return of James the Amazing Randy. Plus, New York Times science writer Carl Zimmer, psychologist and memetics expert Susan Blackmore, the Psybabe Yvette Dontremont, virologist and advocate for science-based medicine Paul Offit, and many, many more, along with comic musician George Rubb, serving as Master of Ceremonies, a magic show from Banachek, author book signings, and of course, a Halloween costume party. It's true, conspiracy theorists, quacks peddling fake medicine, and the deniers of evolution, climate change, and vaccine science are bigger threats than ever. With PsyCon 2018, let's show them that they have just met their match. We'll see you in Las Vegas. For more information and to book your tickets, visit csiconference.org. That's psiconference.org. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. As always, thanks for listening. Want to stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up. These wild hogs, they, their hair becomes extra coarse and long. They get big tusks. They basically turn into wild boars. Bah, bah!